Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the President and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Hi, Bill. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. Uh, a little sleep deprived because of the new puppy, but it's all worth it oh. <laughs> and uh, things are good. Good. Yeah. And all those holiday parties, those have been fun. Puppies and parties, it's a great time of year. Well, we have some big announcements from the FDA that I thought would be good to talk about this week. Of course, we've been covering the FDA updates on their proposed role for making it explicit that lab-developed tests are devices, at least that's what the rule would amend the FDA regulations to clarify. So as we've discussed, the comment period closed on December yep. 4th. Well, we'll have to wait before we hear any updates on that. But it was interesting. I noted that the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs published their unified agenda that indicates they intend to publish the final role by April 2024. Yeah, so I think it's coming. There's other been other changes FDA. Tim Stenzel, who mm -hmm. I think worked in that part of FDA, CEDAR, Center for Diagnostic Radiology and Devices, or whatever that stands for exactly, the alphabet soup that are the government agencies. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was someone that we had known personally. They've, they've been in a new person, so that will be advising, providing kind of medical scientific advisement. So, yeah, I, all signals are pointing that, that they're really going to push towards publishing the final rule. Of course, they have to address the comments in the public record in some way, shape, or form. They don't have to change what they intend to do. Um, they might, but we'll see. They have a lot of work on their side as well. So more to come. It'll be yeah. very interesting over the next several months to see how this evolves. Absolutely. And I think the major point for our listeners is the aggressive timeline that yeah. April of 2024, which is not that far away now, is when they have the goal of publishing this final role. Yep, exactly. So there's that. On a very different note, we also just learned that on December 8th, the FDA approved two milestone treatments for sickle cell disease. And I yeah. thought this was right up your alley. And, you know, before we even get into what are these, what these treatments are, maybe you could tell us a little bit about sickle cell disease. And then these two treatments are gene-based, so we can kind of get into the specifics and what that means for people with this terrible disease as well. We do have in our hematopathology division here in DLMP in Rochester, we have the metabolic hematology lab, which tests for all these different hemologic hemoglobinopathies, I guess is the best way to put it. And sickle cell disease is one of those. It's caused by a mutation in the beta chain. Remember, hemoglobin's a tetramer with two alpha chains and two beta chains. And in sickle cell trait, one of your beta chain genes has a mutation, which if you just have one, if you're heterozygous, it doesn't cause disease and it actually probably helps protect you from malaria. So it's mm -hmm. more common in Mediterranean, Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, those places we've been there more than I have. But if you have two copies, uh, then you get sickle cell disease. And that means when the, the blood gets into a low oxygen, uh, like in the capillaries and a lower oxygen tension setting, the cells get an abnormal shape. They actually turn into what looks like a, a sickle, hence the name, on, under the microscope. And those don't flow through the capillaries. And so what happens then is that it can cause 
lack of blood flow, it's very painful, can actually cause uh, necrosis in organs, you know, or hypoxia. So it's a big problem. One of the things that you look for when you're trying to treat patients with sickle cell disease, if you have a high fetal hemoglobin, so in utero, we have a different hemoglobin, hemoglobin F, which actually binds oxygen really strongly. That's what allows oxygen to go across the placenta into the baby. So if you have a persistence of that hemoglobin F, if it doesn't go away in the first year of life uh, as it's supposed to, it actually protects from sickling because it keeps the oxygen high in the blood. Or if you somehow, for some reason, you know, have more excess of, of the normal beta chain for whatever reason, you know, then it's, oh, it, you can get the balance back. So if you get some normal hemoglobin in there, usually it's by transfusion. So a lot of these patients end up being chronically transfused right now is how they get treated. Yeah. So all these different types of hemoglobin. So I guess hemoglobin A would be the normal type, right? That's correct. Yep. But they have hemoglobin, someone that is homozygous that have both copies of the sickle cell gene have hemoglobin S, two copies. Yep. Yep. One copy would and be sickle cell trait, both copies sickle cell disease. Exactly, which can be a, a real problem and it can cause necrosis of the hip, for instance, and yeah, other, yeah. you know, really it can be a disabling disease. And then hemoglobin F, what you have when you are a fetus, which yep. Is also good, except that the babies usually stop making it when they transition over to hemoglobin A. So this is yep. important. I'm, I'm reviewing all this because it's important to remember when we talk about how these two new therapies actually work. So let's get into the therapies. The two treatments that are approved have long names, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce them. So <laughs> the first is called Castjevy, or maybe it's Castjevy. It is the long name is Exagamglogene. Auto Tem cell, and thankfully we could just call it Exacel for short. <laughs> so <laughs> Exacel is um, very novel because it's the first FDA-approved gene editing cell therapy using the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So fascinating. It is only approved for people with sickle cell disease that are 12 years or older that have had recurrent vaso-occlusive crises, these really painful crises you just talked about, Bill. It's made by companies Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics. And what it actually does is it edits the gene that usually turns off the production of hemoglobin F. And that gene is called BCL11A. So it goes in and edits that particular gene, it deactivates BCL11A in bone marrow stem cells that you've taken from the patient. So now they start making hemoglobin F again. So it's really kind of ingenious. Usually hemoglobin F, I seem to recall it binds oxygen really, really tightly and hemoglobin yep. A might be a little better for adults, but if you don't have hemoglobin A and you just have hemoglobin S, well, hemoglobin F, kind of comes to the rescue and allows these patients to pretty much have normal functioning hemoglobin or at least normal lives without these exactly. pain crises. Yeah. It's all about the oxygen balance. So it, the genetics of this gets really complex, how these things get turned on and off. But there is a disorder called hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, HPFH. Um, mm -hmm. There are drugs which can elevate hemoglobin F2, which are currently yeah. what's used. But if you have HPFH, it, normally, you don't even know it. You might just yeah. get detected it for some other reason. But if you have sickle cell disease, it actually prevents you from actually having the clinical manifestations for exactly, again, it goes back to that physiology. In utero, you need your blood to be able to get oxygen from your mom's blood. So your hemoglobin is even stronger in attracting that oxygen. 
in an adult, what it does is it means there's more oxygen in the bloodstream out in those capillaries. So even if you have two copies of the beta gene, the oxygen tension is probably high enough that you don't sickle there. That's my understanding of the mechanism of action. Yeah. Anyways, irrespective, um, it is definitely protective. And so what this does now, they basically genetically making a person with sickle cell disease have hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin and yeah. be protected from it. Yeah, it's fascinating. So they yeah. take your own stem cells and they treat them with this therapy, turn off the gene that usually suppresses hemoglobin F. So now these stem cells start making hemoglobin F. You get enough of these stem cells that are modified. Then you wipe out, you destroy the rest of the untreated bone marrow, and then you reinfuse the edited cells. So a little yeah. bit of a risky procedure because you do have to wipe out all the bone marrow, but you have this store of cells. You've just edited it and you reinfuse them. And the goal is, is that they take over, they produce hemoglobin F, and now the person has the ability to actually get enough oxygen and not yep. have these painful crises. That's right. And then remembering too, the way the bone marrow works is you have these pluripotent stem cells that as they grow, they become either white blood cells or red blood cells, right? So they're going yep. to those stem cells and, and the ones that turn into red cells then will have this hereditary persistent HPFH, easier said that yep. way, kind of genetically engineered HPFH. So there's all sorts of opportunities for this therapy. They've actually, the companies that have worked on this, tried it in patients with beta thalassemia, as well, a different type of hemoglobinopathy. This was not part of the FDA approval, but it also seems to work for them. So I think we're going to be seeing more of this type of gene therapy getting approval through FDA. That's right. And then the other therapy, of course, I think, where actually just puts in, takes out the hemoglobin S gene and actually introduces genetically, or I don't know if it takes out the S gene, but it definitely genetically introduces normal hemoglobin or, or a normal yes. version, a genetically engineered normal version of hemoglobin. Yeah, the other one is even harder for me to explain. It's a bit more complex, but the other therapy that was also received FDA approval on December 8th is called LovaCell, also known as Lifegenia. And it's made by a company called Bluebird Bio, and it uses more of a traditional approach with a, a viral vector, a lentiviral vector that is just a gene delivery vehicle. It's also approved for patients with sickle cell disease 12 years or older with a history of vaso-occlusive events. And what this does is you still take out those stem cells, those pluripotent stem cells from the patient, so it's their own cells, but then they are genetically modified to produce a version of hemoglobin A. So different than the first one where they're basically producing hemoglobin F, now these cells are genetically modified to produce hemoglobin AT87Q, which is a gene therapy derived hemoglobin and it functions very similarly to hemoglobin A. So two different ways to get a good functioning hemoglobin into these stem cells. And then of course they can be reinfused into the person and now you have functioning hemoglobin, no more painful crises. That's right. And again, I think both of these involve some kind of uh, potential ablation is what we would call yes. it medically, but, you know, knocking out your, the stem cells that you were born with because they have this genetically hemoglobin S disease to try and get you to the right balance. It's interesting. It's all about, you don't have to completely get rid of S. You just have to have enough normal hemoglobin or enough hemoglobin F around mm -hmm. to make sure that the cells don't take this abnormal shape when they get onto the capillaries. Right. So right. it makes it a really probably a, a good candidate for the first gene therapy, but you know, it does raise questions as well, because this is the first 
gene therapy that's going to be approved by the FDA. It really opens, uh, it ushers in a new era that will have great potential for alleviating human, human suffering, but also raise issues around bio, bioethics, which we've yep. talked about with AI as well, right? Yeah, absolutely, Bell. They followed these patients out for one year so far, at least with the first therapy we discussed. There doesn't seem to be any negative side effects, but we don't know that for sure. And it should be a permanent fix, but they've only shown positive reactions for one year. So there's that. The, you know, the possibility that there may be negative side effects that are unforeseen, and yet we are probably going to continue forward with these new types of therapies, and there, we're probably going to see more approvals. I would, would not be surprised if we saw one for beta thalassemia in the future by the same companies. And so it raises those ethical issues of should we be going in and manipulating genes, inactivating genes, inserting genes, and it also yeah. talks about access. These are expensive therapies. And arguably the people that need them are those that are living in very resource poor areas that probably will never be able to afford these therapies. Yeah, one lay press publication estimated about $2 million from one of these therapies. You know, and again, as you and I talked about before we started the podcast, you know, I worked in the Federal Medical Center here in Rochester, the Federal Medical Prison, and that's where I stopped. I had much more experience with actual patients with sickle cell disease because it, you know, it tends to, in the U.S., it tends to affect African-Americans, right? It's more prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa than it is in Mediterranean as well. So I'm Mediterranean descent, but it really is a disease that's just found more in populations that we know already suffer from dis some disparities in healthcare and healthcare access issues. So is it going to actually widen that gap? You know, that's going to be who's going to pay for this. You know, those are all issues. The other thing I think we'll see hotly debated is where do we draw the line? You know, who makes a decision about what things should be candidates for these therapies? Do we just leave it to the pharma companies? Is there some kind of ethical oversight required almost certainly, right, to consider these things? On the one hand, from a laboratory perspective, the FDA oversight of LDTs is something that we're still trying to grapple with, right? But on the other hand, these agencies were created because the intent is to really be thinking about the public good. For us, just in healthcare, to be voices for both, that we need to continue to innovate, create new diagnostics and new therapies for our patients to alleviate suffering. But on the other is to really keep the needs of our patients and society first and really thinking about and being part of that dialogue about how the best ways to do that. Yeah, I agree, Belle. Our podcast today kind of shows two different sides of this coin with regulation. And really, it's all about keeping our patients safe. And, it, and we're worried about uh, regulation that's stifling, but at the same time, regulation that's protecting patients. And you could foresee that companies outside of the United States Smaller countries with money resources, they could be offering therapies that people will travel to get. And yeah. it raises the question of some of these ethical issues. Should you it get a design, sure. a, like a designer baby, pick your own eye color. Anyway, <laughs> that, that's a ways off, thankfully. That's a ways off. <laughs> the, the, the closest I'll come is picking out a Norwich Terrier to start to breed for terriers. <laughs> there is no gene editing involved there whatsoever. So Just the old-fashioned way, right? That's right. Well, Bill, thanks as always for a really uh, interesting discussion. Thank you. Uh, as always, there's no shortage of things for us to talk about. That's for sure. Absolutely. We'll be here for you. All right. See you later. See ya.
Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>